Here, in the north of England, there are some rather crappy remains. Literally. At what was the Roman fort of Verovicium? A garrison of 800 soldiers on Hadrian's Wall. Is a loo legacy that is Britain's oldest latrine. A very public toilet. Two rows of holes facing each other. Imagine 20 or so Romans sitting doing their business. They would chat and gossip and play. Archaeologists found game boards etched between the seats. The word lavatory originated in Roman times. From the Latin lavare, which means to wash. Toilet paper wasn't used in Europe until the 1500s. So higher class Romans used a tessorium or xylospongium. A sponge stuck on a stick. Which was dipped in the water channel running through the middle of the latrine. Where it was cleaned off and then reused. If there was no running water available... A bucket of salt or vinegar water was used. Recently, archaeologists found a 2,000-year-old wooden toilet seat near Hadrian's Wall. Roman latrines were usually topped with marble or stone. So a less chilling wooden seat was a way of keeping bums warm in cold northern England. Sponges were hard to come by in Britain. And were a luxury even in Rome. So poorer folk used small stones to clean their posteriors. Some scholars believe the ancient Greeks used pieces of broken ceramic. Writing the names of people they did not like on the stones. These pieces were called ostraca, which may be the origin of the word ostracised. Stones have been found inscribed with the names of the philosopher Socrates and the politician general Pericles. A comedy by the Greek writer Aristophanes includes a reference to the bum-scraping stones. Fine armour! Best warrior armour in these parts! How much for this cuirass? It's an excellent breastplate, sir. A beautiful fit. Worth a good ten coins. Excellent, you say? I will give you five coins. That's how much I paid for it. Why, it's cost price. At least you won't make a loss on it. It will be very convenient for me to crap in. Cease this impudent mockery of my goods. I can fit my arse on your cuirass. Such low and cheap behaviour. It's your armour that's cheap. Cheap as the stones you wipe your arse with. <sighs> ah, the ancient Greeks. They gave us philosophy, democracy... And toilet humour. Though it's not easy to laugh when wiping your backside with gravel. Pecunia non olet. Meaning? Money does not stink. Is what the Roman Emperor Vespasian said. After he imposed a tax on urine. A pay-for-pee fee levied on Roman laundries. Known as fullers. They used human urine as detergent. Ammonia in the pee removed dirt and grease. Putting dirty garments in pits full of water and urine. Workers trampled on top of the clothes to shift the grime. This stinky job meant the fullers were often ostracised. But were compensated by being among the highest paid workers. Fullers placed pots outside their shops where men could stop to pee and purchased urine 
from the public latrines. When this was taxed by the emperor, the Roman people started calling pisspots Vespasians. The emperor's embarrassed son, Titus, complained to his dad. Why do you insist on making money by taxing smelly urine? Vespasian pulled out a coin and told his son to... Sniff it. Asking Titus... Are you offended by the smell? No. Yet it comes from urine, but money doesn't stink. As well as washing clothes, the Romans used urine to clean and whiten their teeth. The Roman poet Catullus joked, What each man pisses, he uses to brush his teeth every morning. So the more your teeth are polished, the more you are full of piss. And when Romans came across someone with shiny teeth, they would utter that now familiar insult, You're full of piss! In 1080, the newly built White Tower at the Tower of London was fitted out with state-of-the-art toilets. Private cubicles with wooden seats. Known as garderobes. Garderobe comes from the French, meaning clothes protector. In this case, a toilet seat that protected your garments from being soiled. The cubicles had holes leading to the outside walls, which fed into cesspits or the moat. Upstairs, kings and queens and nobles used the garderobes. Downstairs, the cesspits were emptied by the workers. Aristocrats have always assumed the privilege of the royal we. While the general public made use of rivers, ditches and holes in the ground. But some towns did provide public latrines for ordinary folk. In 1544, widow Agnes Gretted was paid two shillings a year for keeping clean the place of Oosebridge Pissing House. The Pissing House stood on the city of York's medieval bridge. Alongside houses, shops and a chapel. This public toilet draining into the River Ouse. York installed the bog on the bridge in the 1400s at an annual cost of 13 shillings. About £1,500 in modern money. One of the earliest examples of a public convenience. It was illuminated at night by oil lamps. But some York citizens abused the public latrine and Agnes complained to the council that The people do throw wood and other nuisances in the latrine house. In 1423, London opened a medieval superloo. A house of easement built on the orders of Mayor Richard Whittington over the River Walbrook. This was no bog standard bog. With 64 seats for women and 64 for men. It was Britain's first sex segregated public toilet. A few hundred yards from the Walbrook, the River Fleet was also causing a stink. With sewage and human excrement blocking the tributary. The river was overflowing with waste from latrines, slaughterhouses and tanneries. The stench was so bad that the local nuns and friars complained of the putrid exhalations, exhalations of, of the, the fleet. fleet to no avail. The river continued its slurry tale. So much so that in 1612, Ben Jonson wrote a mock epic poem to the fleet, 
describing a place where asses were heard to croak instead of frogs, never did Bottom more betray her burden. About the shore of farts, when each privy seat is filled with buttock, and the walls do sweat urine and discord so unsweet, and outcries of the damned in the fleet. An ancient wooden toilet seat was unearthed from the banks of the fleet in the 1980s. Used by the medieval workers from a local hat-making workshop. The effluent from the factory ended up in the fleet. Medieval towns were at war with waste. They tried to combat the problem by setting up public dunghills and dumps on the edges of towns. But rather than be inconvenienced, people simply jettisoned their crap at the nearest location. Covent Garden's charming-sounding Maiden Lane is probably a corruption of midden. Which means dung heap. And London's Cloak Lane comes from the Latin for sewer. To try and combat the rising piles of excrement in the city, York decreed a cart in every ward and where all dung shall be carried out. Coventry fined its citizens for setting up privies and latrines next to rivers and ditches. Policed by a water bailiff who tracked down individuals who had cast any dung or any other things into the water. But as towns grew, so did the crap problem. Kings and queens have sat on thrones to do their business for centuries. Silk-covered posh potties, known as close stools. A cabinet with a seat and an opening at the top. With a chamber pot inside. Closed by a lid. Which is why we refer to excrement as stool today. Unsurprisingly, it was not the monarch who emptied the pot. The person in charge of princely posteriors was known as the groom of the stool. A job where you literally start at the bottom. But in Tudor times, it was a crack position. The highest appointment in the royal household. Giving you intimate, influential and privileged access to the sovereign. The Book of Nurture, written in 1452, included a little rhyme to instruct new grooms to their task. See the privy house for easement be fair, sweet and clean, and that the boards thereupon be covered with cloth fair in green. Look there be blanket, cotton or linen to wipe the nether end. Disposable paper tissue would not make its appearance until several centuries later. So water and an absorbent pattern cloth was used, known as a diaper. Giving us a word for nappy. The groom also administered a bowel cleansing. Literally a royal flush. In 1539, Henry VIII's groom, Sir Thomas Hennage, noted that... After being administered with laxatives and an enema, the king had a very fair sea. The groom reported the quality of the royal poop to the doctors. But while the king had a bottom butler, the rest of the court made do. Some 800 to 1,000 nobles plus their family and servants, all in search of a place to pee. In 1520, the Dutch philosopher Erasmus visited the English court and was shocked to see floors of clay strewed with rushes under which lie unmolested an ancient collection of grease, bones, spittle, 
excrements and everything nasty. There were pissing areas. Thomas Tusser wrote in his Tudor Guide to Living. Some make the chimney chamber pot to smell like filthy stink. But Henry VIII did install facilities for nobles at Hampton Court. Known as the Great House of Easement, it could sit up to 14 people at a time. When Elizabeth I came to the throne, free peeing was banned. The Queen had an aversion to strong smells and uncleanliness. When one courtier farted in her presence, the man was so embarrassed he disappeared from court. On his return, seven years later, Elizabeth remarked wryly, My lord, I had forgot the fart. John Harrington was one of Elizabeth's godsons. She enjoyed his free-spoken attitude and encouraged his writing. But Harrington overstepped the mark by circulating bawdy verses addressed to the ladies of the court. And the Queen banished him. Until you shall translate for me to English, Orlando Furioso. Thinking Harrington would never complete the poem's 38,736 lines. But he was nothing if not determined and finished the definitive English version of the Italian epic. And returned in triumph with another manuscript titled A New Discourse of a Stale Subject called The Metamorphosis of Ajax. Ajax is a pun on the word Jakes, a Tudor word for toilet. Harrington's book overflows with toilet humour and fart gags. To break a little wind Sometime one's life doth save. For want of vent behind, some folk their ruin have. Harrington's invention went beyond the page. He devised the first flushing toilet and explained how to build the bog. To instruct all gentlemen how to reform all unsavoury places of your houses, this shall you do. In the privy cause a cistern containing a barrel to be placed behind the seat, from whence the water may, by a small pipe, be conveyed with some strength. Harrington installed a flushing lavatory at his house, which he named Ajax. Elizabeth saw the device when she visited him in Somerset in 1592. Impressed, she had a Harrington toilet installed at Richmond Palace. The water closet had a pan with an opening at the bottom, sealed with a leather valve. To flush, handles, levers and weights poured in water from the system. But it needed to be emptied twice a day and refilled with gallons and gallons of water. And Queen Elizabeth was scared of the contraption. So royalty stuck to the close stall for at least another two centuries. On the morning of October the 25th, 1760, a royal groom witnessed a toilet tragedy. King George II rose around six, as was normal, drank a cup of hot chocolate and retreated to his closed stool. From outside, his groom heard a crash. The king was found laying on the ground next to his potty. He had died on the throne. In 1326, Richard the Raker was going about his job as a gong farmer. Raking out the excrement from a cesspit. When the ceiling collapsed. And poor Richard was catapulted into a mountain of faeces. Where he drowned.
Gong farmer was the name for workers who removed excrement from privies and cesspits. Gong comes from the Old English gang, meaning to go. A dirty job. Well paid, but not well respected. Ostracised by their neighbours, they were only permitted to live in specified areas. Obliged to work at night, they were sometimes known as nightmen. Cesspits were often located under cellar floors or in the yard of a house. With wooden chutes to carry excrement down from the upper floors. Liquid waste would drain away, leaving only the solid faeces to be collected. The stink meant that they had to be cleaned out every couple of years. During the reign of Queen Elizabeth, Hampton Court gong farmers were paid sixpence a day, a good living for the period. They employed young boys to work in the confined spaces and to lift the full buckets of muck out of the pits. The waste was put in large barrels or pipes and loaded onto a horse-drawn cart. As privies spread to ordinary residences, they were built with backyard alleyways to avoid carrying barrels of waste through the house. After collection, the human dung was either spread on common land or transported to middens on the edges of town. The contents of London's cesspits were taken to dumps on the banks of the River Thames, such as the appropriately named Dung Wharf next to Blackfriars Bridge, and transported on by barge to be used as fertiliser on fields or market gardens. Some dumps were massive. The ironically named Mount Pleasant in London's Clerkenwell was as big as three football pitches. The nightmen found all kinds of horrors amid the human excrement. Such as animals and even the human corpses of unwanted infants. There were severe penalties for not disposing of waste properly. When one London gong farmer poured effluent down a drain, he was forced into one of his own pipes, filled up to his neck with gong, then publicly displayed with a sign detailing his crime. Some nightmen paid the ultimate penalty. Suffocated by the noxious fumes produced by human excrement. But when indoor plumbing removed the need for cesspits, the nightmen had to find a day job. The name Pure Finders is applied to the men engaged in collecting dog's dung from the public streets. Thirty years previously, only old women gathered the substance. They were known by the name of bunters. The Pure Finders meet a ready market for all the dog's dung they collect. They sell it by the bucketful at the numerous tanyards in Bermondsey. This account by writer Henry Mayhew is from his book, The London Labour and the London Poor. Vivid dispatches from life on the margins in Victorian Britain. Mayhew documented the world of the street scavengers. Never has the saying, where there's muck, there's brass, been more true than for the pure finders. The pure finder is found in the open streets where dogs wander. They carry a basket with a cover to hide the contents and wear on their right hand a black leather glove. But many dispense with it as they say it is much easier to wash their hands than to keep the glove fit for use. There cannot be fewer than 300 persons in this business, working with about 30 tanyards in Bermondsey. They obtain a very fair living, 
with an average of a shilling a bucket and weekly earnings of about seven shillings and sixpence. Of recent, numbers of destitute Irish children have taken to picking the material, but not knowing where to sell it, they part with it for tuppence the pailful to the regular finders, who resell it for an uplift at the tanyards. The leather for shoes and gloves in Victorian society was prepared in the tanners' dung pits. The pure is used by manufacturers of calfskins and kid leather and the better class of shoemakers, bookbinders and glovers. The workmen rub the pure by hand into the skin. This is done to purify the leather as the dung has scouring qualities. The skin is then hung up to be dried. The dung removes all moisture, which, if allowed to remain, makes the leather unsound and gives a disagreeable smell. So leather buyers often use both nose and tongue in making their purchases. Mayhew searched the lost corners of London to uncover the stories of the street scavengers. In the wretched locality at the docks, redolent of filth and diseases, and whither all the outcasts of the metropolitan population seem to be drawn, there is a little court with about half a dozen houses of the very smallest dimensions. Here, in one of the upper rooms, I discerned a pure finder. The place was bare and almost naked except a couple of old tin kettles, a basket and broken crockery. There resides a poor old woman resembling a bundle of rags and filth stretched on some dirty straw in the corner. To my astonishment, I found this wretched creature to be a superior woman who could read and write, spoke correctly of natural good sense, though broken up with age, want and infirmity. She made the following statement. I am about 60 years of age. My father was a milkman, very well off. I was kept at school till I was 14 years of age when my father died and I had to help my mother in the business. After a while, things went wrong. The cows began to die and mother married again. Glad to get away, I married a sailor and was very comfortable with him as he always left me half his pay. Then he was pressed and sent away and I never saw him from that day to this. I went into service in the Mile End Road till I met my second husband, a waterman on the river. We did very well together till he became paralysed. We had no other means of living left and were advised to take to gathering of pure. At first I couldn't endure the business. I couldn't bear to eat. I was obliged to discontinue. My husband kept at it though, only he couldn't walk proper or lift his hands as high as his head. When he couldn't make enough to keep us, I took heart and went out again and used to gather more than he did. If we only gathered a pailful a day, we could live well, for there wasn't near so many at the business then. Six years ago, my husband complained that he was ill. One evening, he lay down in the bed, took a fit of coughing, and was smothered in his blood. After my husband's death, I couldn't do much, 
and all my things went away one by one till I've nothing but bare walls. All the poor creatures that have come in of late have pulled down the price of pure. There are so many at it that there's not much left for a poor old creature like me. I was yesterday out all day and went round Allgate, Whitechapel and Bow. After that, I went over to the tan yard and there I only got sixpence for me pains. Today I wasn't out at all. I, I, I've got a bad headache and I'm so much afraid of the fevers that are all about here. I've earned no money today. I've had a piece of dry bread that I steeped in water to eat. I haven't eaten anything else today, but praise her. Don't tell anybody of it. What troubles I've gone through. I had eight children at one time, and there's not one of them alive now. I've had no one in the wide world to care for me. None but myself. All alone as I am, but I die rather than go to the workhouse. I've known several of our people who have sat down in the street with their basket alongside them and expired. I'd sooner die like them than be deprived of my liberty. I'll never go into the workhouse. Chancellor of the Exchequer. Sir, I took the liberty of moving that the orders of the day should be postponed, that I might bring under the attention of the House a bill, the object of which is the purification of the River Thames. The condition of the waters of that river has fallen upon the inhabitants of this metropolis as an unexpected calamity. That noble river, so long the pride and joy of Englishmen, which has hitherto been associated with feats of commerce and the most beautiful passages of our poetry, has become a Stygian pool, reeking with ineffable and intolerable horrors. The public health is at stake. Almost all living things that existed in the water of the Thames have disappeared or been destroyed. A very natural fear has arisen that living beings upon its banks may share the same fate. There is a pervading apprehension of pestilence in this great city. I ask for leave to introduce a bill which will attempt to terminate a state of affairs so fraught with danger to our public health. When Benjamin Disraeli made this characteristically eloquent address to the House of Commons in July 1858, the stench from the river outside the building was overbearing. MPs and ministers had fled a committee room in the middle of a session, gagging and retching. A long, hot summer had cooked the sewerage in the River Thames. And the city was gripped by a crisis that Londoners dubbed The Great Stink. The London City Press newspaper reported Our father river is the receptacle of the excreta of nearly three millions of persons. Dwellings, 
factories, laundries, streets pour their liquid and solid refuse into its current. A navy of active steamboats employ their paddle wheels in stirring the mixture. And the sun, that great agent of fermentation, sets the mass into a work, so that from Teddington to the Nore, the Thames breeds pestilence for all who traverse its surface, or live within the reach of the air that has wafted over its steam of putrefaction. The Duke of Buccleuch, speaking in the Lords, remarked, Here in the heart of our city, a Thames waterman died from the cholera. Shame! Brought on by his exposure to the stench of the river while plying his vocation below London Bridge. And a young woman, who very recently attempted suicide by throwing herself over one of the bridges, was more endangered by the poisonous nature of the water she imbibed than from being immersed in it for the few seconds which elapsed before she was rescued. For years, Parliament had been debating the sewerage problem. But as Charles Dickens wrote, The cause of the nuisance is perfectly clear. So are the means of the cure. But no minister has the courage to demand what it will cost. It was 35 degrees in London on that hot day when Disraeli and the Commons assembled in the chamber. To try and smother the noxious fumes, Parliament blinds were soaked in lime to quench the smell. To no avail. Mr Brady! I wish to call to the attention of the House the impracticability of carrying on the public business of the country with due care, attention and deliberation in the pestilential atmosphere of the Thames. For this reason, I would urge the expediency of presenting an address to Her Majesty, suggesting holding the remaining portion of this session in some healthy portion of Her Majesty's dominions. But the Chancellor announced, we propose to cleanse and purify our river and to complete the main drainage of the city at a cost to be computed at no less than three million pounds. Over a billion pounds in modern money. London's sewage saviour was Joseph Bazalgette, who masterminded one of the greatest civil engineering projects in the world building 1,100 miles of drains under London streets to feed into 82 miles of new brick-lined sewers. Joining up the patchwork of existing municipal drains. He embanked the river. Built bridges including Battersea Bridge, Albert Bridge and Putney Bridge. And two cathedrals of sewerage, the pumping stations at Crossness and Abbey Mills. His gravity pipes took the effluent out of London to the east in giant brick tunnels. Downstream from the centre of London. Dumping it into the Thames estuary at high tide. The sewers banished the deathly cholera epidemics from the capital. The system is still in place today. But the designs weren't perfect. In 1878, a Thames pleasure steamer sailing through Woolwich collided with a huge coal transporter. The steamer sank, leading to over 650 deaths. The accident took place close to the Woolwich sewage outfalls. And 150 victims died from swallowing toxic waters. 
the new sewers had moved the pollution problem downriver. In London, a man may sometimes walk a mile before he can meet with a suitable corner. For so unaccommodating are the owners of doorways, passages and angles that they seem to have exhausted invention in the ridiculous barricados and shelves which conduct the stream into the shoes of the luckless white who shall dare to profane the entrenchments. The complaints of one visitor to the capital recounted in the 1800s in the Farmer's Magazine. The lack of public toilets in the capital left desperate citizens searching out alleyways or corners to relieve themselves. With the city installing devices to discourage the casual leg lifter. Rare survival barricados can be seen just off London's Fleet Street. Grooved iron shelves fixed into a wall at an angle designed to bounce pee back onto the person peeing. And when the Trafalgar Square fountains opened in 1844, an angry letter to the Times appeared, complaining that they were... polluted by brutes in human shape. All this is evidence of a butter-clenching lack of public facilities. Up until the 1820s, urination and defecation often took place in public places, such as fields, gardens and the streets. The first sign of a solution arrived at the Great Exhibition of 1851. Held in Hyde Park in the giant Crystal Palace. Where plumber George Jennings installed the first public toilets in Britain. These cubicles were nicknamed monkey closets. 827,280 visitors paid one penny to use them. And the phrase, to spend a penny, became a euphemism for going to the toilet. But it would take many decades for public toilets to appear on the streets. And as soon as authorities planned or installed a civic facility, a barrage of complaints arrived. November the 3rd, 1857. The petition of the inhabitants of Grosvenor Street and the vicinity against the proposed erection of a public urinal opposite Her Majesty's private entrance to Buckingham Palace. The petitioners view with considerable alarm and strong feelings of disgust the proposed erection for the following reasons. The position is unsuitable and ill-chosen. There are several milliners' establishments overlooking the spot, and on account of the young ladies employed, it would be open to great objection. Being in the direct road of Her Majesty and the inhabitants of Belgravia, it would certainly cause a diversion of the traffic to the detriment of many of your petitioners. The class for whose accommodation it is designed not having very refined notions of public decency. In the face of opposition, Plummer Jennings, extolling the virtues of public conveniences, boldly claimed... The civilisation of a people can be measured by their domestic and sanitary appliances. And while Jennings' company did manage to build some public facilities... For the middle classes, the best place for a toilet visit was at home. Where they were busy installing water closets. Made possible by the 1775 work of Scottish inventor Alexander Cumming. 
who was granted the first legal patent for a flush toilet. His great innovation was the S-Ben pipe set below the bowl. A water seal preventing sewer gas from coming up through the toilet and stinking out the lavatory. Allowing households to connect their toilets to the public sewage system. The 1848 Public Health Act required every new house to have a water closet, privy or ash pit, furnished with proper doors and coverings. But the lack of proper sewers meant that the Victorians were sending their sewage to existing drains. Which fed into local rivers and streams. And in that year, 1848, 14,000 people died of cholera in London. 55,000 throughout Britain. The arrival of the flushing toilet was poisoning the country. While Lou Lords made fortunes installing private privies, there was a desperate lack of public female facilities. The first public toilets were designed for men. Meaning women could travel only as far as their bladders would allow. This was known as the urinary leash. And women's underwear was designed open at the crotch. So that for modesty and emergency convenience, ladies could quickly relieve themselves without having to pull down their drawers. In the 1850s, campaigning groups formed to demand change. Dear Sir, I do not know of any public free provision having yet been made for women and believe none exists in London. This has led to our committee to suggest the utilisation of existing buildings at park lodges, cemeteries, recreation grounds, hospitals, laundries, baths, workhouses, schools, churches and small shops where articles are sold in which women are interested. The best plan, of course, would be special erections placed in a well-frequented part of the parish, not in the middle of a roadway or close to a public house. If an attendant were supplied, it would be quite possible to make a charge for accommodation, but a Free WC should always exist at a paying station. The increasing number of women of all classes who travel about London daily renders such provision of serious moment. We earnestly hope that the parish may find it possible to help a class who naturally find it difficult to ask for public consideration in this matter while experiencing grievous suffering. Whichever parish shall give humane consideration will have earned the gratitude of all women and set an example that cannot fail to be beneficial to health and social morality. I remain Sincerely yours, Rose Adams, Secretary of the Ladies' Sanitary Association. The Union of Women's Liberal and Radical Associations also took a stand, pardon the pun, on women's urinals. 
The Lou leash affected poor, lower-class women more than the middle and upper classes. Those with money could afford to pay to visit hotels or to shop in department stores with facilities. So the union campaigned for women's toilets to be added to the existing men's latrines. In the face of stern opposition, when a demonstration women's toilet was set up on the pavement in Camden High Street, hansom cabs, driven by men, deliberately crashed into the structure. It was hard to combat the prejudice that women who used public toilets were prostitutes. In an era when unaccompanied women in the streets were scorned, the provision of public ladies' bathrooms was seen as a threat to decency. It's Bermondsey, 1858. A team of men are working in the sewers beneath the streets of South London. A worker's lamp suddenly flips open. It's flame sending an explosion ripping through the tunnel. The men struggle to bring their injured workmates out of the dark hole. Three of them are horribly burnt. Scorched on head, face, neck and arms. Eyebrows and hair almost completely burnt off. Scarred for life. The work of the Victorian sewer men was perilous. The tunnels were rank with methane. The combustible gas that could explode. Or suffocate victims. That same year, under the main sewer in Whitechapel, three men fell unconscious, landing on top of each other, and died. Sewer waste decomposed into toxic hydrogen sulphide. The source of that familiar rotten egg smell from drains. And choke damp. Carbon dioxide that could suffocate the sewer men. And if the gas wasn't dangerous enough, Flash floods often drowned workers. Blockages were caused by the public throwing rubbish into the drains. Sewer workers had to unblock tunnels clogged with everything. From bottles, coal cinders, even dead animals. Add to this the industrial waste pouring out from badly regulated factories and chemical plants. In 1875, a gang of flushers working in London's Wandsworth entered a local sewer near to the works of Messrs Wallace manufacturing chemists. The works had already been the subject of an indignation committee formed by local residents. Angered by the ventilators in the road emitting dense hot vapour in the evening which made passers-by feel ill. The sewer flushers discovered a blue substance which burnt their hands fearfully and turned them all sorts of colours. The men were overcome by a burst of steam, reported as... A hissing noise, like opening ginger beer, together with a sudden smell of sulphur, like brimstone going down their throats. All four flushers were knocked unconscious, and one died before he could be rescued. Writer Henry Mayhew recorded the story of one of London's sewermen. He is a broad-shouldered, strongly-built man with a stoop in his shoulders and a rather dull cast of features. From living so much in the sewers, his eyes have assumed a peering kind of look that is quite rat-like in its furtiveness. He answered our questions with great good humour, but in short monosyllabic terms, peculiar to men who have little communion with their fellows. 
The parlour in which the man lives was swarming with children when we paid him a visit, not all belonging to him. Nor was it quite pleasant to find that the smell of the tea, which had just been made, was overpowered by the odour of the rats, which he keeps in the same room. I've been a showman these 15 or 16 years, ever since flushing commenced. I'm employed by the parish. Every parish has to do its own flushing. We cleanses away the soil what's down below and keeps the shore as sweet as possible. But when the flushing money got to be lowered, I took to catching rats. I generally takes a lantern with me and I catch them all down the shores. I run after them and pick them up with me hand. <laughs> Some parts of the shores I can find my way better than I can above. <laughs> a stranger might lose themselves. But I could come down here and get out in Hyde Park. The worst thing of it is that you're always in a stoop. Rats will turn on you when they find themselves beat. I've got bit. I don't like it when they grip because they hold so tight. They fetches all kinds of prices, does rats. I gets two shillings a dozen if I sell the rats at a dealer. But if I take them to the pit myself, I gets three shillings. A man will have his pint of beer and see a little sport that way. Rat baiting was a popular attraction, particularly at pubs. Captured rats were released in a pen with punters betting on how long a dog would take to kill them. Often two dogs competed with the winner receiving a cash prize. Catching them rats ain't all profit. Cause for a good price, you have to keep them and feed them. As for poisoning rats under buildings, that is wool. They're sure to lay there and rot, and then they smell and they stinks up the sewers. The tunnels where the rat catchers and flushers worked still carry London waste today. Echoing to the stories of the men who lived, worked, and sometimes lost their lives dealing with our human waste. This Extraordinary Stories of Britain podcast was written and produced by Mark Zakian and narrated with Laura Adams. Other voices by Tony Lewis. The music was composed by Jeremy Pattle. For more podcasts, visit www.storiesofbritain.com or find us on Twitter at Stories Britain. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a like and give us a review.